You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. All right, this passage might not be the passage you expected um, for this morning. As Jonathan already alluded to a little bit, this is the fourth week of Advent, so it's the fourth uh, Advent sermon here. And then tonight we'll have a Christmas Eve service, which we hope you come back to at 4 p.m. here in this same place. If you're a guest or if you haven't been with us for too long, this past year we preached through the whole book of Hebrews. And then through the Advent season here, we've been slowing down to go back to four particular parts in Hebrews and and, uh, diving deeper into a specific text to highlight Jesus' person and work, what he came to do, and in a lot of ways highlight his, his humanity and how he relates to us. We've looked at Jesus being made a little lower than angels for a while, him being made like his brothers in every respect. Last week, we looked at how Jesus in the days of his flesh related to us in prayer and waiting and in suffering. And this morning, we're going to look at Jesus who suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. This passage highlights the purpose for which Jesus came. He came to save his people. His ability to save is the main purpose in all he did as he walked on the earth. This morning, I'm going to look at three things together. First, Jesus came into the world to save the world. You need to know that. Jesus went to, Jesus went outside the camp to save the world. What does that mean? And three, we must go to Jesus to be saved. So if you'd pray with me quickly before we get started. Father, I pray that you would give us help uh, in this moment. Lord, would you make it clear what Jesus came to do and how he did that for us? Um, help us now to have, have focus and, and work through your words this morning in Hebrews. And we ask this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we need to know Jesus came into the world to, to save the world. In the beginning, before anything was created, there was God. A God from all eternity that existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God that is the very definition of love and was perfectly and eternally happy. He lacked nothing. He needed nothing. And from his love and joy and freedom, he created the world. He created the world as an overflow of all that he is. He created the universe with all its beauty and joy and life that is in it. He did not create because he was bored or lonely or sad. God could have never created the world, and he still would be eternally satisfied, eternally happy, eternally joyful. He did not need us, yet his love and joy overflowed, and he created the world, and he created people that could know him and delight in him and have a relationship with him. But it didn't take long for mankind to leave the good design of God and look for another way. In the garden, just in Genesis 3, we see a doubt planted by Satan in Adam and Eve's minds. They think maybe God isn't good as they thought. Maybe he shouldn't be as trusted. Maybe they know a better way. And in rebellion to God, they sought to do what they thought was best, and they disobeyed God, and sin entered the world. 
And sin has wreaked havoc on this world. The world that God created has been broken, and the people God created have been broken. The world became a dark place and continues to be a dark place. And it needs redemption. It needs saving. And the greatest problem isn't an external one. It's an internal one. The sin in the hearts of human beings was the greatest problem then in the garden, and it's the greatest problem now. Sin in the hearts of mankind is the cause of all of it. Yet, God still loved the world and the people he created. He had a plan from the very beginning to save his people from their sins. He wasn't thrown for a loop and started to scramble, but he always had a plan set in motion. And a few verses later, in Genesis 3, after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we see the first promise of hope for a world that was lost. God said to Satan, who had deceived Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning of Scripture, there was a declaration that evil would be defeated. And then after that, Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden to the east, and an angel blocked the way back. They had been separated from God and could not return. But don't miss this. From the very first day that Adam and Eve fell as they were sent out of the garden, God had a plan to rescue them. God had a plan to save them. And so we start waiting from the first day sent out of the garden. The people of God were waiting for a son. We sing, come thou long expected Jesus. That's a long time. Moments after the first sin, they were waiting for a son. Jesus said, a son of a woman would come. Now after that moment, the earth spiraled deeper and deeper into sin, sin towards God, sin towards one another from bad to worse, and God judged the world through a flood, and he only saved Noah and those who were with him. But a few chapters later, just in Genesis 12, God comes to Abram, who's later named, renamed Abraham, and speaks of a son again. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was promised an offspring that would bless the whole world. God again speaking of a son that was to come. And through the prophets and all through Old, Old Testament, there's more and more speech about this son, who he will be, what he will be like, what he will do. Here are just a, a couple examples to walk through. One was just read and prayed a moment ago, and it's good to go right back to it. In Isaiah 9, it shows us that the son will conquer and reign. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this son 
one of the things said about him is he will come and be a king and he will reign forever. We see that a lot of times in scripture. We see that as a hope of Israel over and over and over again. But we also see a much less seen and maybe less understood aspect of this son. That this son will suffer and die for us. Just going to read a few parts of Isaiah 53. We can read the whole thing. Tried to um, pare it down for us this morning. And so just a few verses out of Isaiah 53, speaking of this son in an other way that he would come, says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it continues, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb, that's key, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no, no deceit in his mouth. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And much more could be said of the son. Much more could even be read in that chapter. But we see that it was an eternal king coming, but also a son coming to suffer and die. And they weren't sure how these were going to work. Much more could be said. There are more things that he is. He's a perfect example. He's a teacher. He's a shepherd. He's our guide. But what we needed was a savior. He came to save the world, a world desperately needing saving. We see God's front and center purpose here in one of the most popular verses of all time, which maybe you haven't thought about as being about Advent. Um, if you walked in here this morning, you haven't been to church in decades, or you're invited by a friend, you've never read the Bible, there's a good chance that this verse is familiar to you. And it's talking about Advent. It's talking about Christmas. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. Jesus came into the world that we may be saved through him. Jesus was the promised child that they were talking about. So how would Jesus save the world? By dying for their sins. But more specifically, the answer in Hebrews is by suffering outside the camp. So we want to look at this morning, Jesus went outside the camp to save the world. As we get to this passage, and it talks about altars and sin offerings and suffering, in contrast with what Israel walked through in the Old Testament law and the Old Testament sacrificial system, this is going to feel a little foreign to us. We've seen from the beginning that God was going to send a Savior but for the family of Israel, which became the nation of Israel, the way to forgiveness and relationship with God was seen through the sacrificial system. That was the air they breathed. That was the world that they lived in. 
We don't live in a time prior to Christ. We haven't been Jews that walked into that. We haven't sacrificed things. And so it's a, a little foreign to us. But if we look at it and learn from it, it helps us to see and recognize why Jesus came. So I'm going to read it here again for us and answer the question, why does it say he suffered outside the camp? Why is that the way that Jesus died for us? What do we learn from that? So Hebrews 13, 10 through 12. So we, followers of Jesus, have an altar from which those who serve the tent, the Old Testament priests, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This passage is dense. It is is deep. There's a bunch of things that could be mentioned why Jesus went outside the camp. There's a few more probably that I don't even understand. Um, But we're just going to look at two, the clearest two here in the text and how that relates to us this morning. So first reason why Jesus went outside the camp. He suffered and died outside the camp to show that he was the point of the Day of Atonement. It says, these animals were brought outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the camp and makes the connection there right for us. There are many types of sacrifices, different days and different things that need to be done in the Old Testament sacrificial system under the law. But what he's talking about here, today, here is the Day of Atonement. Those were the only sacrifices that were brought into the holy places, their blood brought behind the curtain. That's what he's highlighting here. That's what he's comparing Jesus to. So he's saying Jesus went outside the camp just like those sacrifices went outside the camp because it's pointing to Jesus was a sacrifice for sin, like those were the highest sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice of sin on the Day of Atonement was a one time a year where the high priest could go behind the curtain into the most holy place to where the mercy seat was. And the instructions he had to follow were meticulous, just a little bit of what had to be done on this one day a year to atone for the sin of Israel. He had to first wash and bathe and put on holy garments. They needed to take fire and incense and bring it to the altar of incense right before the curtain so that the smoke would fill the room and, it would, and there would be a cloud covering the mercy seat. And it says he did this so that he would not die. And so the smoke went in, was a barrier and clouding so that when he went in there, God would not strike him dead. And then first he had to sacrifice a bull for his own sins and take the blood of it and then go in and sprinkle it before the mercy seat within the smoke that was in there, first to cover his own sins before he could even talk about him covering the sins of the people. And then next, he would sacrifice a goat for the people and likewise bring the blood in and sprinkle it before the mercy seat. Again, not our average Friday, not our average Saturday, um, but this is what God was teaching and showing us through the Old Testament sacrifice system. The fat of the animals were then burned on the altar, and then the rest of them were carried outside the camp and burned, as our text talks about here. The greatest and holiest sacrifice was taken outside the camp. So Jesus suffered outside the camp. Jesus' death for sin had similarities to the Day of Atonement. We're supposed to see that connection here, that Jesus was atoning for sin, like the holiest sacrifice did under the law. So that's the first reason he did it, to say, 
I'm, I came to atone for sin. But the second one is by way of contrast. Jesus suffered outside the camp to show that true forgiveness of sin was never to be found in the sacrificial system. Jesus died outside the camp in contrast to the sacrificial system, which had not been able to cleanse people from their sins. As we've looked through the book of Hebrews, if you've been here with us, the main theme has been consider Jesus, go to Jesus, look at Jesus, because he is better. Jesus is the better thing that is needed because he accomplished what the Old Testament sacrifice system could not do, nor was meant to do. The sacrificial system was never meant to be the final way to relate to God. From its creation, it was temporary and insufficient. Jesus died outside the camp as a second reason to show that something new had come. I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard of the term planned obsolescence. I think it's kind of a business slash marketing term. The idea is making something artificially obsolete, whether perceived or in reality. Um, and so it's, it's a way to get to you to buy more stuff and buy more stuff quickly. Uh, a perceived example would be the new phone, phone comes out. Your phone has six cameras. This one's got seven. And now all of a sudden your life is lacking without it. And so they make you think, man, I need that new color. I need that new camera. That's perceived obsolescence. They want you to feel like what you have is obsolete. Or an example of a real one is they just put a cheap part in there that doesn't make it. You buy a nice new fridge and then it breaks right after the warranty. Um, and sometimes things break. Sometimes things are made cheaply so that they break. Or, for example, again, back to a phone. I bought a phone a couple years ago and uh, I was like, oh, it's a new phone. God, I, need, I don't need like the super big memory. I don't need all that. I'm just going to buy the basic. Well, the camera had been updated on these things. And so... When you take a picture, it takes like 10 times the memory that my old phone did. So it got to a point where it's like, am I going to download this new app or am I going to delete pictures of my kid's birthday party? I didn't have any memory. I didn't realize that I could have very few pictures. And the idea was planned obsolescence. I get this phone, I take pictures, it can't hold them. I need a new phone. I need more memory. Now, both of these examples are, are negative examples. They're to get me to buy something new and quicker. I think there's good examples of planned obsolescence. Something as simple as a cooler. So maybe you've got a Christmas Eve meal coming up or Christmas dinner tomorrow, and you've got nice hot food, and you just need to get it from your house over there. You need to get it from this oven to that oven. You need to get it from this fridge to that fridge. A bag of ice or a warm bag has planned obsolescence. It's not made to last. It's not made to heat the food forever. It's not made to cool the drinks forever, but it accomplishes its purpose by getting this thing temporarily there to the thing that it was made for. It accomplishes the task, but it's not the final and lasting thing. The Old Testament and the sacrificial system served as a temporary guardian and structure so that we would be ready to receive the fulfillment of salvation. It was never meant to last. The sacrificial system wasn't made to last and to be sufficient. It was temporary and insufficient, incomplete. It instructed Israel and it instructs us 
the seriousness of our sins. And his incompleteness shows us that we need something more. We need a son to come. We need to be ready for Jesus to come. And it helps us understand him when he comes. And so we look for more, like Israel did. They long awaited a son, even through thousands of years of the sacrificial system, annual days of atonement. They're looking for something more. They ought to be looking for something more because God had designed it that way. And so I want to walk through quickly five ways that the Old Testament system shows us that, that it shows us that it wasn't built to last. It wasn't made to finish it. It it shows us that something more was to come. So I'll try and walk through these quickly. Um, And these are all in in Hebrews where it talks about there's something more to come. So the first one, Jesus came as a high priest in the way of Melchizedek. You don't need to know much about Melchizedek. You can go back and listen to the sermons. But the point is the priests came through Aaron. And it says the son that was going to come was going to come in the line of Melchizedek, a different priest. And a priest that was a priest before Aaron was even born. And so this priesthood was sooner. This priesthood was greater. It was superior. And Jesus came in the likeness of of that priesthood. And so by priority, it was before Aaron and his priesthood existed, signifying that there's another priesthood to come. The son to come will come in that way, not in the way of Aaron, outside of the sacrificial system. Two, the priesthood establishes the law and covenant and government and the government of it. And so you might not think of it that way, but the priesthood was put in place and then the law and the sacrificial system and the governing of it was under the priesthood. And what the scripture is signaling is not under Aaron, it's under this different priesthood, it's signaling there's a different covenant, there's a different way to relate to God, there's a different way of governing it. With the priesthood comes the law, comes the covenant. And so if it's not under Aaron, there's another one. There's a new one. There's a better one to come. Three, when it talks about Moses building the tent of meeting, it says that it served as a copy. It says the tent served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That may not stick out as significant to us, but he's saying there's a real one somewhere else, and this is the model of it. The model under your Christmas tree of an F-15 is different than an F-15 fire jet. And he's saying, see that you make it and model it after this, implying there's another one. There's a greater one. There was one before this. This is just a model. This is a copy of that. Four, The way into the Holy of Holies was closed. The high priest could only go once a year and needed to sacrifice an animal for his own sins. They could not freely go into the presence of the Lord under the old covenant. And the manner they went in, as I described a few minutes ago, screams all but says, you shouldn't be in here. No one else was supposed to go in the tent while the high priest was in there. And you've got the smoke and you've got the sacrifices and you've got the blood and you've got the cleaning of your clothes and you've got meticulous instructions. You've got the incense going forward saying, you shouldn't be in here. The way isn't yet open. Even after that sin offering, it wasn't open now. They did not go back in until a year later. The way was closed under the sacrificial system to God. 
It says that directly in Hebrews. It says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened. It's temporary and incomplete. All of these are to help Israel and us show that there's something else we should be looking for. There's a son to come. And the fifth one that we see in our text here, if you're still tracking with me in these, we get one more indication here of the insufficiency of the sacrificial system in our text today. He mentions that we have an altar in which the priests in the Old Testament have no right to eat. Again, that might not flag something in our minds. We're not as familiar. We don't live under this system. But the specific comparison, as said here, is between the Day of Atonement sacrifice for sin and Jesus' sacrifice for sin. There were some sacrifices that Israelites could eat from. There was some sacrifice that priests could eat from. And there was one sacrifice that they could not eat from. The sacrifice of sin in which the blood was brought into the most holy place in the presence of the Lord. They could not eat of it. It must be burnt outside the camp. We get this from Leviticus 6.30, which Hebrews is quoting. It says this very thing. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. That was the instruction to the priests in the Old Testament. Eating signifies sharing in. Eating signifies fellowship. Eating signifies peace. What we should see here is that they could not go in. They could not eat. It had to be repeated saying, this isn't it. The peace hasn't been made. The sin hasn't been covered yet. The access to God isn't yet there. The priest couldn't go in freely because their sins still remained. The people could not eat of this sacrifice because their sins still remained. It was not the answer for their sins, but it was a tutor and guide for them and an instructor for us so that we may see the real thing when it comes. We need a different altar, and that's what Jesus gives us. Jesus never entered the tent of meeting on the earth. He never went in there. He was not sacrificed on the bronze altar. The best the sacrificial system could give us The sacrifice for sin on the Day of Atonement couldn't get it done. But it prepares us to be ready for Jesus and for his death. Jesus, in contrast, died once for sin and was raised never to die again, not to be repeated year after year. He died and was raised never to die again. He entered once, it says, For all into the holy place, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. He did it. He finished it. He secured it. He only had to do it once, and he raised. Jesus ascended into heaven to the true tent where he, through his death, has opened up access for us all to Christ. For Christ has entered into the holy places, Hebrews says, made, not made with hands, which are copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And when he died, 
the curtain tore in two, showing that access had now been opened. But not just on earth, in heaven, where Jesus goes as a forerunner for us, where Jesus is our mediator, Jesus is our sacrifice, our high priest, that we can boldly come before God knowing access has now been opened. And three, you see that Jesus gives us an altar that we have the right to eat from. We have a sacrifice that we can spiritually eat from and be nourished by. We have a sacrifice that we share in, that we have fellowship through, that gives us peace with God. We need to know and see the shadow so that when Jesus comes, we can, we can see that difference. He, he died once. This had to continue over and over again. This was a reminder of sin. Jesus gives us forgiveness. The way wasn't open yet. The way is open now. They could not eat of this sacrifice. We can spiritually eat of this sacrifice. And so Jesus has opened the way for us. And all of Scripture shows that sin is the problem from day one. And Jesus came to send a son. God came to send a son, who's Jesus, to save us from our sins. So last, verse 13 says, what do we, what do, we do with this? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. We must go to Jesus to be saved. We must go out of the camp to receive Jesus and be saved by him. To leave the camp is, is spiritual, though, not, not spatial. The camp for the Hebrews was the city and everything that came with it, the protection and the sacrifices and the law and the rituals and the people and the security and status that came with it. All of that was the camp that Israel was in. He didn't say... You have to physically go out of it, that we just got to get up out of here and go. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual movement, not a spatial movement. He's saying, you've put your identity and your hope and your forgiveness all into this. Yet Jesus came and fulfilled the law and removed the law and established a new thing. You need to go to that. So there no, is no exact equivalent for us. We don't have a law that we're living under that was good, that God designed for us, that he's saying, you got you to move from that. The greater has come here. But if there is any example of things that we look for, for those things, for status, for life, for security, for safety, for stability, it would be the world. Is our hope in this world and in this life? Is our security and our identity in our money or our job or our planned future? The camp for us is anything that's contrary to God, anything that we would trust and hope in rather than Jesus? Do we put our trust just in the things that we can see and acquire, or do we trust Jesus, that he's better and greater than all of that, that we move from this? There is no hope. There is no life in the world. We put our faith in Jesus. That's how we go to him outside the camp. And when we go to him, in some sense, we bear his reproach. But we remember he's a, a treasure. Paul said, whatever I had gained, I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we see who he is and we see what he has done, we gladly go to him. We need to remember that that's not the heavy burden. Our sin is the heavy burden. 
If the Old Testament sacrifices teach us anything, it's that sin is costly. Your sin costs you animals that you, that you raised and grain that you watered. It costs you wine that you fermented. And it costs a death. Blood had to be spilt to show you that that's what your sin costs. And it ultimately costs Jesus his precious blood. That is the cost of our sin. That's what needed to come for us to have forgiveness with God. The, bull, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But it was to show us that there is a blood, there is a sacrifice that can take away sin. Our sin is what enslaves us. And that is what God came to free us from. He came to free us from the fear of death. He says, take my yoke upon you. There's something to carry. But my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we must go to Jesus. And this morning, we remember that there was a manger, but Jesus is no longer in the manger. We remember the cross. Jesus is no longer on the cross. We remember the grave, but Jesus is no longer in the grave. He came to save the world and went outside the camp so that we may be saved. We go to him as our great shepherd and high priest, as our savior, the savior of the world. He came to save. And that's what he did if we would but go to him. And this brings us to the table this morning, to communion. The amazing part of the table is that Jesus says, take, eat, eat. This is my body given for you. Through Jesus, we have the right to eat. We have the fellowship. We have the forgiveness. We have the relationship with God. We have the right to eat. We remember that Jesus is the bread of life, that we've been united to Jesus by faith and reconciled to God, to all who trust in him. The bread and the cup this morning are primarily for city's members. But if you would say, I've, I've gone to Jesus, I've put my hope in him, by faith I've gone outside of the camp to be with him, then we invite you to eat and drink with us this morning. But if you're not there yet, then we ask that you let the elements pass, lest you proclaim something that you do not believe, that you trust and rest in Jesus. We'll have some pastors and, and deacons and members come serve the bread first here. So we're going to serve the bread. You can hold it, and we'll eat it together. All the bread is gluten-free. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.